We're joined today by Pearl Wushumani Totezi, who will be chatting about how social media activism has prompted organizations and institutions to effect change. Almost six months of lockdown in South Africa has made us adapt to having social media as one of the very few ways to stay in touch with loved ones and the rest of the world. So it's no surprise that this is the same platform that sent people around the world in protest against some of the recurring issues facing communities in the world. The resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement against police brutality and general discrimination against Black Americans almost saw the internet play an intermediating role influencing societal change. This was after video footage of George Floyd being murdered by four Minneapolis police went viral. The discussion that took place on the internet ranged from general public outrage to communities wanting greater commitment from organizations and institutions to become more inclusive of black people within their structure and commit to doing a much better job of deconstructing institutional racism. Closer to home, we've seen how the internet has driven awareness against gender-based violence. The death of 19-year-old Uyinene Mkwajana in August last year sparked a movement. Around the country, women took to the streets to ask, am I next? While we're all encouraged by the sentiment of action, some may ask whether or not the online community is able to affect institutional change. Pearl joins us today, and she is a seasoned journalist and editor who has seen how social media has impacted not only her own environment, but also her industry, both for better and for worse. Thank you so much for joining us today, Pearl. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. We're really looking forward to hearing you speak today. Um, please, can you tell us a little bit more about what you understand social media activism to be? So social media activism, right? And um, for a long time, that's called slacktivism. Although I realize now that I think about it, it's not really a term I hear very often. So social media activism is, it's activism, but you're just using the internet, you're using Twitter, you're using Facebook, you're using Instagram uh, to try and bring about change. So originally, when it was called slacktivism, it was basically a criticism of people on the internet, say, hopping on to an issue and being uh, angry over something, tweeting about something, using hashtags, sharing whatever articles about something and all the outrage, but not accompanied by any tangible action. But as time has gone on and as the platforms online have also changed and evolved and their use has increased, like, you know, you've got petitions, for instance, um, you know, change.org or whatever else where people uh, use or Amanda Mobi, you know, all the places that people use basically to try and enact some sort of tangible change. Um, it has become a lot more, act, a lot more of an activist space online than it was previously. So it is when you raise awareness about an issue um, to bring about some sort of tangible change. And I think also, for instance, um, platforms like Backabuddy or GoFundMe can be um, activist platforms when you are donating towards a certain cause, uh, whether it's a trans cause or something about education. Uh, activism on the internet is a real thing rather than just people uh, hashtagging. Um, but the thing is, Social media also is a tool, right? It's just one of the tools. It's not like the destination. So it's not as though being an activist, I think, means that you just tweet about something or you talk about something and then that's kind of where it ends. For a lot of people, they use it as um, a road that leads to the ultimate destination, which would be change. And it's just one of the roads that we can use to try and bring about change in the world we live in. 
All right. Um, and why do you feel, uh, Pearl, that the platforms that have now started getting more attention from media and institutions versus, say, for instance, 10 years ago, when, you know, we referred to activism as slacktivism on the internet, insinuating that it doesn't do any good apart from trending on the internet for a couple of days and then people sort of forget about it. Well, firstly, I have to admit, I was one of the journalists who was for a very long time skeptical about it. Um, even as recently as like five or six years ago, I think I was probably writing, um, I don't want to say disparaging articles because I don't do that very often. I've been guilty of it once or twice, but um, I've written really cynical articles about that. But my perspective has changed and I think for a lot of people and media has changed because we are seeing that there's tangible change from from some from some of these um slacktivist causes right that happen so it started I mean the Arab Spring was 10 years ago I didn't even realize that it was that long ago but it started with something like the Arab Spring and then in South Africa eventually became like the fallist movement which started five years ago I think five six years ago um and even though there were people who were physically there um, at I mean the, the people who led it were physically there right um, putting their bodies and their their their, their minds and um, their mental health at risk daily for a cause that they believed in um, fallism uh, which started as roads must fall and then became fees must fall um, but as you watch those movements unfold the internet was such a really big and important tool in it. Uh, it played such a big role um, in terms of at least pushing forward the, the, the thoughts, uh, pushing forward the ideas behind the fallist movement. And as we've watched the fallist movement, actually, um, South Africa, I think that's a really big prominent example, actually bring about tangible change. Some of it was cosmetic, uh, like with the president, our previous president when he decided his parting gift would be free education to everybody but um nothing's really happened since uh but as you watch those changes happen as you watch the statues fall even though people think statues falling some people think statues falling means nothing but as you'd watch those little changes happen everybody started to realize and media specifically started to realize that you can't just write it all as you know ugh, just a bunch of angry people on the internet nothing's going to happen there's not going to be any real change you'd watch that real change as people would get fired over facebook posts right and then you realize it's not just the internet and i think part of that change also has to do with uh, our changing attitudes as society towards the internet so i think for a long time uh, the internet was looked at as almost like a plaything and fantasy and not real life and as art directed as it is as staged as it can be you know as as edited as as it is it's still real life and now we know that it's just a part of our our daily existence and it impacts every single thing that we do to the point where we can't dismiss it anymore and that's why you are seeing a lot of um woke washing i, I learned that phrase today I'd, I'd never heard it before uh work washing from brands and from newspapers and uh magazines where they're performing the they seem to be keeping up with the times and they're they're, they're um very performative in their activism and in their their change um because they've they've started to see that okay this is the direction that the world is going in it is not just social media it is not just the internet um it was completely underestimated for a long time and that was uh, a mistake and we're all yeah. seeing it now to your point do you feel as though people are far more accountable during this age of social media i i think people are held to account more 
for sure. But I don't know if there's any like tangible lasting impact. Um, and you know, people call it, we call it accountability, but others call it cancel culture. Previously it was called PC culture. Um, and you have like all these international thought leaders signing a letter that's whining about the end of freedom of speech um and because people feel muzzled when in actual fact they're still not really muzzled uh but i think one of the things that 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 is happening is not necessarily that i think people are more accountable people are watching what they say sometimes it's a good thing sometimes it's a bad thing but i think it's mostly a good thing because a lot of the people who will complain about the end of freedom of speech who will say that we live in cancel culture you know you can't say anything you can't you can't live, you can't breathe of it on the internet without the mobs descending on you. Um, those same people tend to be the most powerful people, actually. And they're people who have enjoyed privileged, whether it's privilege, excuse me, whether it's because of the color of their skin or their gender or their social standing, the class they're in, how much money they have. They're people who have never had to be held accountable before, who have never had to watch what they say, I think, who have never... Um, had to tiptoe around anybody and now that um, we're reaching an age or a time where the internet is I wouldn't say it's 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 a democracy because it isn't but the internet is so much more accessible to so many different people especially with the uh, uh, when the the the, the um, they called it CBD Twitter and they still call it CBD Twitter right free Twitter there we go um, which is very classist also but as you have more people have access to sharing their voices and the idea of the voiceless no longer exists, people who previously were used to being the ones who were able to communicate and communication was a one-way street are having a difficult time dealing with the fact that it's changed. It's two ways now. And that doesn't mean that, that necessarily all of it is good. Of course not. But um, it's, I think it's a good thing that more people are able at least to hold the powerful to account but I don't think that it's, it's as severe as uh, privileged people will, will, will have us believe it is. We've seen this evolution of, of the internet with more people having accessibility. And more recently, there have been some really, really phenomenal movements that have been not necessarily sparked by the internet, but, but have been pushed forward by the internet. Do you, um, what have been some of the examples that you could maybe look at where real change has been achieved, achieved by social media activism? Okay, so the, the Arab Spring, it, was, it started in, and I could be wrong, but when I became aware of it, it was Tunisia and Egypt, um, when you had, and it was Egypt actually, where you had young, younger, a younger generation using the internet to mobilize against their governments, against um, the circumstances under which they were forced to live, against, you know, whether it was like, I mean, things were a mess economically, um, socially. And so young people, I think, who felt that they didn't have any other way to mobilize, use the internet to just sort of uh, mobilize against the leaders. And, you know, they'd say, oh, this is where we're meeting. Um, I mean, WhatsApp also has played a really huge role in that as the years have gone, has, have gone by. But uh, they were using the internet to share their discontent, to voice their discontent, um, and then to just really mobilize offline and where people just have movements in, you know, different squares, um, protesting against the world that they were living in, against their leaders are making it clear that, look, we're really unhappy. And it wasn't just like, Oh, people 
online only. It actually, there were physical, there was physical evidence um, that couldn't be ignored by a lot of leaders uh, in those different countries. And whether or not the change was good or not, I think is, it, it doesn't really matter in the context of this conversation, right? It is just more that young people finally, I think who for a long time didn't have a voice, didn't have a place, didn't, didn't really know way to turn to use the internet to 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 speak uh you know the, the the times of writing a letter to the editor or also just having to i think gather um underground and in hiding i wouldn't say it's dying because that's a very privileged thing to say but you saw it sort of like ending a little bit because you know when you have a tool like the internet you start to because it's a communication tool, uh, you start to see that you're not alone and that it's not just you and your group of friends who are in this place of discontent, but actually there are millions of you and there's, there's power in numbers, therefore the numbers started to come out into the streets and the, the internet played a role in that or people rather use the internet to mobilize. So yeah. With that being said, our society is obviously changing and we're we're witnessing all of these things and we're witnessing the impact that social media has on society, but it's not always positive. I think that's one of the key things that we need to always consider is that yes, there's activism. Activism doesn't necessarily have to um, effect change that is positive. I know for myself at the beginning of a Feasmas for movement, um, I think coming from, you know, my own point and my perspective, uh, I didn't really understand it, you know. The internet really helped me to understand because for, for, for my, at that point in time, I could call it a privileged perspective. I didn't understand why students were burning down um, uh, institutions because these are the same institutions that will assist us to empower ourselves and eventually become, you know, economically and socially um, empowered individuals um, until I really did the learning and unlearning for myself. But at the same time, not all movements and not all sort of activity on social media is positive. Um, do you feel a digitally networked public sphere will continue to shape public movements? And if so, how so? I, I think that, I think that of course it will um, continue to shape our discourse. In terms of how, I really don't know. I just think that the lines between offline and on, online are becoming more and more blurry as time goes on. And right now in the pandemic, it's definitely pushed, uh, it's pushed that even forward, I think, fast forwarded it a little bit more than previously, as we start to realize that not everything that we don't always need to be physically around each other, physically around things, uh, to physically and physically experiencing things for them to happen, for um, change to happen, for movements to happen, for you know magazines to be put together, for instance, or for work to happen. Uh, as we start to live more and more of our lives online, uh, it, it's it's only it only makes sense that of course it will always shape the way that we communicate uh whether it's a good thing or a bad thing i mean obviously people um have had many different arguments about it about how you know we are we are the product if you're on twitter if you're on facebook your data is not yours um we don't own our own information any longer and we'll see how that plays out but in terms of public discourse yeah this is i mean this is a primary communication tool now especially in a world where some of us in other parts of the world, I see people are going on holiday and living La Vida Loca. But um, here at least, you know, in a world where you can't really leave your house or leave your neighborhood, uh, we have to do everything this way. Like you and me, you know, previously we'd have to, what, probably sit in a hall and have a chat. And now we don't need to do that. Um, so as, 
as offline and online, the lives become blurred and it's just sort of just real life, all of it. Of course, it's going to impact the way that we communicate and the way that change happens. You wrote an article a couple of years ago, and I'm, and I'm sure some of your feelings have to an extent changed, possibly not, um, that woke Twitter has ruined social media for everybody. Twitter used to be a fun place that both entertained and enlightened. It was reflection and a leader of a changing global mood, but not so much anymore. And we've obviously witnessed that. Um, there is sort of a, a, a huge level of cancel culture on Twitter uh, where people will look for any excuse to really jump onto some sort of topic or if they really have some sort of, to an extent, a personal vendetta against a personality um, to, to really just go at it uh, with them and become, to an extent, cyber bullies. How do you feel as much as it's not necessarily a medium in the way that an organized medium such as a newspaper or magazine is, social mm -hmm. media is a medium and it does influence decisions and it does influence people's thought process, thought processes. What are your thoughts around the cancel culture, for instance, on, on Twitter specifically, and just the general negativity that takes place? Um, so there's a New York Times writer, Charles M. Blow, who says there's no such thing as cancel culture and I understand what he means um, because the phrase is loved by people who are generally quite powerful, therefore they actually cannot be cancelled. Uh, they just, I think, are um, performing victimhood, which ironically is also what other people are accused of doing all the time on social media. But I think like anything in life, right, where there are a lot of people congregating and a lot of people gathering, um, of course, there are people who also just take advantage and there are people who go just completely left from, you know, who aren't genuine. And I think activism and, and um, wokeness, when I wrote that piece, I didn't, I wasn't talking about, I think, wokeness in its true form where you are genuinely outraged by an issue because it is a societal ill or it is an injustice, but rather that there are people who just enjoy, number one, what aboutism, who like they just wait until like, I don't know, we get upset over something and then they jump in and they say, but what about this? You are not a real activist because you don't care about this. Um, you find that there are a lot of people who, who do ruin the fun just because they're very performative, who ruin the fun because they just want to argue, um, who will find who will find their fault in something that where there is very little fault, to be honest, or who will just, you know, turn what what's that old English phrase, make a mountain out of a molehill. Um and, you know, for me, I wasn't dismissing wokeness in general, just that, you know, like with everything else, the people who take advantage uh, and who will seek attention and who will gaslight you. There we go. There's a lot of gaslighting that happens in the name of workness or in the name of justice. Um, but, you know, I think it's, uh, especially now years later after that article, um, as somebody who is on Twitter, very active, I do feel like it's a small price to pay, to, to pay for all the other good things, I think, that come from Twitter, to be honest with you. Because for me, it's still a place of unlearning. Um, it's still a place of, um, there's still some fun. I think it obviously also depends on your timeline. And that's both the beauty and the danger of being on something like Twitter, right? Which is that um, you can end up in an echo chamber or maybe you just create a safe space for yourself. And it depends on what you use Twitter for, how you would feel about um, the way that other people use it also, if that makes sense. So for me, as my relationship 
with it also has changed. It's a lot less serious. I've gone back to just being like, you know what, I actually want to just have fun. And I don't fight with people as much as I used to. And I don't let people you know, bait me into arguments because that's another thing. But that's also something you will fall victim to at a bry or on a date where someone will just like ask a question. I'm just asking, but in actual fact, they're just trying to like trap you into an argument that they think you'll lose. Um, but I think it's a very small fraction of Twitter that is like that. Yeah. If you mute it or block people. No, definitely. And I think you bro- you brought up quite a good point in the sense that uh, you brought it up earlier as well that Twitter or you know the internet and social media is very much like the real world nowadays because if you're not enjoying somebody's content it's the same way you wouldn't enjoy somebody's company so you're either mute or block <laughs> or do whatever it is that yeah. you want to do to not have to experience that individual or that kind of content um, in an online space so I think it's really great that you've got into a space where you've found a balance for yourself on, on, on a place like Twitter because a lot of the time you do become somewhat of a of a target if if people know you know yes. if they're bored they'll just chat to Pearl they know they can say something that'll rile her up. And that being said, Pearl, um the last maybe four or five years, I think possibly long around maybe 2015 onwards, there's been a lot of talk around just general gender-based topics. Um, this is now far before um, Uyinin is uh, passing, which really sort of brought the, the, it was sort of, it was a huge turning point in the discussion. Um, a lot of the time you'll find that it, it becomes a battle of women against men. Women will say something around what it looks like to be a woman in South Africa. And it feels as though we're, you know, we're, um, we're trying to look for some sort of pity party. But I think mm. last year's incidents with, with Uyin and his sad sort of passing, it really sort of brought the community, um, the online community, as well as obviously institutional communities, so newspapers as well, and just general awareness. And I think our government did sort of, I won't really make too much comment on that. I'll leave that up to you. But <laughs> they did obviously, be, they were impacted to an extent because they realized just how far I think our country has come in terms of how violent the nature of, of our society is. Um, what would you make of that kind of, of situation? What were your learnings from, from, from all of the activity that happened on, on social media and how it transpired to the movement that it was? I have mixed feelings about this, but most of my feelings are actually quite cynical um, and angry. And uh, I wrote a piece about, uh, about that for the Sunday Times around when Uyinene passed and we marched in the streets of, of Joburg. Um, uh, well, that's where I was marching. And, um, you know, it was like, we've been here before, actually, right? It started with one of the, the to, well, to my knowledge, let me rather say, right? For me, the first time I really saw outrage over like the murder and rape of a woman, uh, such a common occurrence in our country, was Anine Boysen, right? Because, but the thing is, it has to be a specific, a particularly brutal way that a woman is like disposed of for us to then like, you know, um, and I, I don't want to say for us to march, definitely not, but for everybody suddenly to be mobilized, for the government to also be like, we're going to create a GBV robot. <laughs> Or we have five BMWs too that are going to help us fight gender-based violence. Oh my goodness. It's absolutely outrageous. 
But um, with Uyinene, for instance, it was, you know, the piece that I wrote, it, it feels weird to do this where I quote myself, but I was saying that we get here once every couple of months, once every couple of years, now it's once every couple of months, right? Um, with social media, where we, where we are all, I mean, everybody, including misogynistic men, are outraged and we're angry and we say enough is enough do something let it change and then we we get angry the, the people get angry but nothing really comes from it still we had it happens so often now where every couple of months it's a new woman who's a hashtag because she was murdered in a particularly brutal manner and that is really the only time we make the news because six women die every day in south africa statistically and half of those three of them are statistically at the hands of their partners right um their intimate partners and it's been happening for so long i don't for me i don't think that um it's brought about that tangible of a, of a change in terms of policy, uh, in terms of policing, in terms of more arrests. You still find way, you know, you go onto, I don't know, SAPS Twitter account and they show us bottles of wine being confiscated rather than, you know, people being arrested for a rape and or a murder. Um, on the good side, it's great that and um, great in quotation marks it's great that um we do get we do hear more of those stories rather not get um that we hear more of those stories because we and women can actually speak up now in a in a way where we don't need somebody else to speak up for us right we don't need to wait for um validation from anybody or a microphone to be handed to us in order to amplify our voices and that's one of the things that i've really enjoyed about the internet and and i think that's been um, really important, which is creating a quote unquote safe space for, for women. Um, and this is in just one aspect. And when I say a safe space, I mean a place where we do feel emboldened or confident enough to share our own stories of horror because pretty much every single woman in this country has those, those horror stories, right? I think the stat is, one in three South African women will be raped in her lifetime, um, which is frightening. Uh, but that know, is very just, scary. Yeah, it's so scary. But we actually can. We have the tools to um, publicly express it, and it yeah. is about the power in numbers to know. So when Me Too trends every single time it comes back, or where there was um, a few weeks ago where people were just sharing the, the age at which they were first uh, sexually assaulted. Um, you know, and literally people are just reading, I was 12, I was 30, I was whatever. Um, you know, where you have those voices being amplified, that's been great to witness. The Me Too movement has been so impactful in the sense of making you feel like you're not alone and like we're not quote unquote crazy. Um, and for creating, I think, less space for us to be gaslit in that, in that, uh, in that context. But it still hasn't created a tangible change offline quote unquote yeah. um for us like i said in terms of like policy changes or whatever mm. but um there is a lot of performativeness also the, from the government and yeah. you know we must hear speeches where the president is always outraged last year around union he told us to have a weekend of prayer and i was just like please man just arrest people <laughs> i think well it is it is obviously something that that you know you bring up something that is quite interesting in the sense that we are talking about the fact that social media activism and whether or not, not even whether or not, okay, in instances, some instances it has um, brought about institutional change and in some instances it has not. And I guess mm. the, the whole journey is obviously quite a long and, and 
Warian uh, one. Um, uh, and perhaps part of a reason why it becomes a little bit more difficult in a country like South Africa is we are not obviously a first world country, and this is not an excuse by any means. Um, we are not a first world country. I think it's, and, and in some instances, I also find myself getting very sort of wrapped up in my virtual reality, in my sort of little bubble of suburbia and forgetting potentially where we're coming from and where the rest of this country is. Um, Twitter, for instance, social media, specifically in South Africa, doesn't make up a lot of, of, of people, firstly. And even so, I mean, we, we're not assuming that everybody on Twitter or anybody on social media or anybody on any type of online learning, YouTube, for instance, is there to learn and engage in a positive and meaningful way or to learn and unlearn. Um, so that could potentially be why, you know, you'll have a lot of active, I, I won't necessarily mention things that have happened in the past, specifically mm -hmm. around gender-based violence. You'll have a lot of outrage and a lot of real sort of concern and a lot of, to an extent, coverage in the media around gender-based violence, around things like the Me Too movement. You'll have protests, but because of the way in which our country may be structured, the people that are perpetuators to a large extent, and not just perpetuators, I mean, we have a lot of misogynistic men, whether urban or rural, whether in any type of society, but where the education needs to go, it doesn't land um and you know and you see the difference with with the movements happening in places like america where i don't i can't speak on behalf of of the changes that happen in their institutions but the the reach it definitely reaches far more people there's definitely whether people that are perpetuators of the the either the hate speech or the crime um in which the activism is is against actually do it change at all but we can definitely say in first world countries the reach is there. Um, would you then say, Pearl, that in a country like ours, activism on social media will ever get to a point where it makes real change? Or that has, have you seen any examples of where there has been real change when, when you, we've seen sort of online activism or sort of not first world South Africa activism, but activism that reaches, <laughs> you know, the part of our demographic that is to an extent privileged. I think, I mean, there's, there's a lot to unpack there, right? Because our problems are just like multitudinous, um, which I know is usually a word that's used positively, but you know, our problems are many and they're never ending, it feels. Um, and there is so much for us to actually deal with and, um, you know, I saw, and I didn't get a chance to actually read on it, but I saw a, a stat yesterday, which I'm going to actually read up on this after, that only 25% of the American population is on Twitter. Um, and if it's 25% of the American population, I mean, the, the most recent stat I heard, uh, which was, I think, a year ago, about how many Africans are on Twitter was like something like 3 million, which is nothing right? It's such a tiny amount of people. Um, but the thing with, with uh, your, it'll take number one, we've got so many problems, the data is so expensive, as we know, which is why that, you know, we'd be like, data must fall, data or data, I'll say data, data must fall, right? Uh, we'll have uh, hashtags like that, where people are mobilizing because, um, or mobilizing, quote, unquote, because we aren't really, to be honest. Um, 
where, you know, for there's so many barriers of entry uh, for people to come onto Twitter. And besides that, though, right, talking about the literacy level of South Africa. And that's why, for instance, something like radio won't, I think, ever die, especially with the state of the country being what it is, is that there's still so many people who aren't literate. So by that virtue, things like online petitions, for instance, even if you do have access to the internet you won't necessarily use it because you don't know how to read or you don't know how to write so how are you going to be you know logging onto any websites reading about whatever it may be um or you know unlearning certain societal ideas that you have you don't have those avenues you don't have that access um and you know the thing with south africans the south africans we do protest a lot right but the class does come into it. The elitism does come into it because like the poorest of the poor have been protesting in South Africa for a very long time. And it was really around like uh, 2007, eight that I, when, when I was, was I studying journalism at the time? I think I was when service delivery protests started to get media coverage. Um, and that's the only time also that, that you'll see uh, the, the, the protests and the pleas of the poorest of the poor be heard is if there's violence and destruction. Um, if it bleeds, it leads. Then, yeah, then it'll trend. Then it'll be in, in the newspapers. It'll be on television or whatever. The rest of the time, people aren't heard and I think that's also part of what pushes them to that point of absolute rage where you would burn a library in your own neighborhood um, and I'm privileged to not be in that position right and I think for a lot of us it's so easy also to dismiss it all as just like thuggery and violence and of course there's always an element of that as with anything there are opportunists everywhere of course that's like not unique to us um, but you know a lot of us will then also be on Twitter complaining about you, you know, look at you burning, uh, blah, 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 because we actually are too privileged to understand what it's like to not to be heard to that point. I think we, we all have, especially if you have access to something like social media, it's a place where you're heard, whether you are heard by 10 million people or you're heard by 10, but you are there amplifying your voice, sharing it. And for so many people, they don't have a place where they can share their voice and they don't have a place where they can unlearn, um, which is why it also need to go back to just like our basic education and our social education where you would need to have set works like i really think that like pumla dinoakola or professor pumla dinoakola's uh book rape needs to be part of like uh set work in every single school to be honest public and private because it's such an important book that unpacks the meaning of rape culture, the origins of rape culture, what rape culture looks like, because um, so much has been normalized in our societies and we are a nation of very traumatized people. If you think about it, right? Like South Africa's just been trauma after trauma after trauma for a long time. And then people get re-traumatized by poverty. You're re-traumatized um, by unemployment. You're re-traumatized by hunger. I mean, there've been studies that have shown, uh, you know, the that poverty, for instance, uh, exacerbates mental health issues and people don't even have access to treatment for mental health. And that's not to use that as an excuse for every act of violence against a woman is because the people who committed do not know any better or are powerless. Uh, it, it, but it, there, there is definitely an element of that. And so, of course, yeah, we can tweet and we can talk about gender-based violence and then not see any tangible change because um, a lot of the words and the ideas don't reach the people it needs to reach. But 
that's why, like I said earlier, the internet is just one road. It's one avenue that's supposed to lead to some destination. And um, I mean, that's what we have governments for also, right? To, to help us, to help us get to a place where you're not afraid to drive alone after dark. Even, even just forget the dark. People get kidnapped in broad daylight in South Africa, right? Like women get dragged into cars, walking down a crowded street. Um, and that's not a problem that the internet can solve. I think if anything, mine was more of a, a statement around, there are mm. so many issues, you know, there are so many issues in our country where we're not in a, in a position where we can even address certain things because of just lack of accessibility um, when it comes to things like the internet, you know, and then as you've said, you know, we've, we've, we're a country that has gone through so many traumas and there is an element of, you know, the education aspect. There, there's lots of nuances that really build up to where we find ourselves as a country today. And your last statement led to the answer, which was um, the fact that the internet can't solve problems that are, okay, ooh, this is such a, a sad <laughs> a realization, but the internet can't solve problems that are meant to be solved primarily by institutions who operate in ways that are good for the people, I think is, is what you were, you were trying to get at. Um, so now specifically around the voiceless, you, 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 you have mentioned that, you know, women have found spaces where they can either be confident or not be gaslighted around certain things around gender-based violence and harassment and that kind of behavior that has somewhat been normalized in our society. Uh, how do you feel about the concept of citizen journalism, having said that? And I ask this in two, in two parts. So social media has done this really phenomenal, phenomenal being the word I use, quote unquote, whether positive or negative, negative. It's done this phenomenal thing where it's given anybody access to be able to spread news, whether fake or not. Um, and at the same time, what it's done is that it's, it's, it's also created an environment where journalists might, to an extent, get um, drawn into, you know, really lazy type of journalism where people are just taking tweets and creating articles, which is the most this is <laughs> insane thing I've seen. Um, what are your thoughts around, you know, citizen journalism? Do you feel that's something that's positive around giving voices to the voiceless? As with everything, there's a good and a bad. Um, but, you know, just to address um, threads or, or rather embedded tweets as articles, uh, you know, that has replaced the Vox Pops, right? Because back in the days, man, you uh, back in the days, not even that long ago, but you would have to like go to a shopping center and walk up to people and be like, hi, I just want to know. And they'd be like, leave me alone. Now you don't have to do that because people are giving you their force for free. Um, and that's not... That's not me saying yay that because no, but I also understand. <laughs> I also understand how it happens, especially because you have um, newsrooms that are that, that that aren't staffed by a lot of people, and there's so much more work to do. Where you, you one journalist has to do the job of three journalists. Um, but anyway, citizen journalism. I think I think you know originally I remember back in the day when the barriers to entry um, for the internet were higher than they are now not that they're not high because we've discussed as they are um you would find that a lot of the times um it was it was touted as, as a positive thing um as an important 
aspect uh, of, of, you know, but as long as it's just a tiny, minute part of journalism, right? As long as the almighty powerful media houses are the ones who are still dictating what the conversation is, who gets to say what, when, where, how, and why. Um, you know, as long as the, the, that status quo remained undis largely undisturbed, people were fine with citizen journalism. People, I think, even might have thought it was quaint um, and, and adorable. But now, as more as the barriers to entry are lowering a little bit, right, you find that the conversation around it has changed suddenly where it's just like everyone's like, well, the quality of public discourse, you know, has decline significantly and I, I don't necessarily think that that's true um, my only issue is that I find people in general are really lazy and it's not just journalists people are lazy like they don't read beyond anything so if you see what like for instance maybe because anybody obviously can start a website and you can call it news right you can say I don't know um, white wall news whatever i'm looking at the white wall behind me i was trying to think of a name whitewallnews.co.za and you can just like write news that is not real right news that is the genuine meaning of fake not the donald trump version of fake news um but news that actually is not true and you can write it and people don't put an effort towards like critical thinking or you know reading up a bit more on it they'll just sort of take whatever they read as gospel i think that's one of the dangers so then then it's very easy for somebody to um to use the internet to use journalism to to completely influence the way that people think i mean that's how also cambridge analytica would have happened right all the fake news that were showing up um on 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 facebook uh where you could just it could be completely outrageous and untrue but because people don't this is a huge generalization but people do not think critically people do not read they'll just take whatever they see and believe it and then things like that will influence public discourse and perception and conversations etc um but it's so easy uh, now for somebody to use of for anybody to use the internet for their own not so nefarious, it sounds so dramatic, like I'm talking about like Dr. Evil, but to use, uh, you know, the intent for their own nefarious means. But at the same time, to be fair, that isn't something that is only a problem or a danger now because anybody can do it. I mean, it's not as though media uh, and media houses haven't previously done it for a very, very long time. And you look at, for instance, even in the States where they have such a huge, such a huge media scene, which I really, I would love it if our media, our media space could be that big, where like there is a website for everything and there's maybe a TV channel uh, or a news channel for like every single perspective, whether you're like a Fox News or you're a CNN or you're in whoever else exists or, you know, you've got Sky, Euronews, etc. cetera. Um, but it's not as though media itself in the fourth estate hasn't been guilty of that kind of behavior. It's just a lot of the time it's been dressed up as, um, objectivity uh and you know well here are the facts this is how we're presented them you can't question us uh but yeah citizen journalism good and bad um just like journalism itself and on that note objectivity is is something that is now sort of being shown in journalism to not necessarily be true because of the fact that beyond i mean beyond you know the article there are always more than two sides to a story would you agree with Absolutely. that mm. i do agree with that completely um because it's not just 
you, you know, one of the things about objectivity was it was like, you know, it's factual information. Something can be factually correct, but factually incomplete, as we know, and as we can constantly see. And it's about yes. which facts you want to involve, include, excuse me, <laughs> you can't involve facts, they're not people, but, you know, in terms of which facts you want to include in whatever um, article you're writing or broadcast you're putting together. Um, I think we've reached the stage and the internet, uh, social media, Twitter specifically, let me say, has played a very big role in it where journalists have been humanized for good and for bad. Um, and I think it is important where at least you can actually take it with a pinch of salt because you can see also where your news is coming from. And we're not talking about news about five people died in an accident today on this freeway. Like, of course, fine. But we're talking about like news that has more nuance, that has many more, uh, much more color. That's not just black and white. Um, you know, investigation, investigative journalism itself, it's not like it's um, uh, immune also from uh, lacking objectivity. And um, as we've seen the journalists, I'm a journalist myself, behind uh, the articles that we read um, and the, 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 the media that we consume, then it, it, it informs your perspective on the story. Sometimes unfairly so, where you'll just see this byline and you're like, ah, you know, you'll see Pearl and you're like, oh God, she's going to be raging about men again. Let me read. So I could write a piece that is like a <laughs> completely factual information about, I don't know, the stats of how many women get murdered every day and it'll still be easy for somebody else to dismiss it as propaganda or uh you know because they know or pearl tweets about men are losers or whatever um yeah <laughs> but yeah objectivity um is something that for a long time i think was untouchable but the the the, the conversations around that are changing even from like other journalists and journalistic institu institutes, excuse me, um, there are interesting articles that are sort of unpacking why essentially objectivity is a scam. That's me saying, saying it in a very millennial way, like, you know, but yeah. yeah. Objectivity <laughs> is a scam. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, on that note, with objectivity potentially being a scam, and in, in, in the spirit of learning and unlearning, Pearl, do you because I think bringing us back to the topic, social media activism, prompting organizations and institutions to effect change, and not necessarily huge organizations. Sometimes it's just schools, for instance. Um, the activity that has been going on in social media that has given such light and awareness in, in terms of helping potentially even with black learners that either went to private or ex-model C schools who saw things as just being normal and that's just how it is to sort of understand that you know this may not and i think leading back to journalism i mean if you have been told your whole life this is our code of conduct this is how we behave we do not have our hair done in this way we do not wear extensions that are you know whatever this color certain practices are not accepted certain cultural and religion religious practices are not accepted in the school now you could talk about journalism having to sort of relook objectivity. Society has had to relook what a just and equal and happy society looks like that is inclusive to people. And for a lot of people, I think social media has helped them unpack even some of the traumas. And I hate putting that in inverted commas because it is an actual trauma um, that they've experienced that maybe didn't understand at that point in time was a trauma because children 
don't always know. Um, I mean, children are often told to just do what adults say. And those are obviously in the form of teachers and parents. Do you feel like social media activism to an extent has somehow prompted organizations and institutions to effect change? Yeah, I do. And, 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 and I enjoy that you say to an extent, because definitely that's exactly it. It's like a little bit, um, you know, where you will see, you know, if, if, for instance, a hashtag or outrage results in, I don't know, um, uh, a predator teacher being fired, right? Whereas previously that predator teacher or that yeah. predatory teacher would not be fired, they'd just be moved to another school or, you know, just like, or moved to another section of the school or whatever. Um, but now you have them, let's say, they just completely can't be a teacher anymore because there was this huge um, attention and outrage because of actions that they'd committed, right? Um, when you get a change like that, it's really great that a change like that can happen. When um, a change happens where the school rules, okay, maybe open up a bit more about hair and are more inclusive in terms of hair and uh, inclusive racially in terms of hair or inclusive in terms of gender, the idea of gender, for instance, right? Uh, let's say bathrooms or whatever at schools. That is really great. But we also shouldn't confuse that with the culture changing. So sometimes one thing can change. Um, you know, one misogynists can lose their job we shouldn't confuse um sometimes a, a change a cosmetic change let's say um with change of an entire system because there's still so much more that can still remain so yeah maybe the teacher that one teacher for instance will get fired because there was like a huge social media outrage and it was like big news all over the place that was on every newspaper front page and with a hashtag for 10 days and you're like eventually like okay we'll fire whoever this teacher is however if that school or that institution still has and it happens also right with like workplaces um if that that workplace or that school that institution uh, education higher education has happened to still has a culture that is um that that allows sexual harassment or sexual violence or racism um, or misogyny or, you know, discrimination against somebody because of their religion or homophobia uh, to thrive, that has not solved the problem. So sometimes the symptom that will, 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 will disappear. Like you have a cough and then you have some medicine and then they say your cough goes away. It doesn't mean that you're healed. Um, and I find that a lot of institutions and a lot of um, uh, brands and then, then it goes back to that phrase of woke washing, right? But a lot of brands will perform um, change without actually effecting change, you know, but it's also very easy. Then we become happy if the name of um, some, some a hall changes or, you know, the name of a product changes or the name of a band changes. Suddenly you're not, you know, Lady Antebellum, now you're Lady A. And then we think, oh, yeah, great. We've, you know, huge change has been achieved, but it hasn't. It's just the beginning. Um, but because of the way that social media is set up also just in the way that we use it, there's always, there's so much going on. It's like information overload. And there's, there's always something to be genuinely outraged about, right? There's always something to talk about. There's always something to tackle that it's easy for us to forget that, you know, there's still, there's still other bigger underlying problems with this one, let's say, this one case with the sexual harassment or whatever. And media is guilty of it too, right? One of the things we often get accused of is not following up on stories, which happens all the, all the time. So while the story is hot, we're here, we're all over it, we chase it. And then when the flavor's gone, we leave it. And it's as though that's it, it just ends mid-air. Um, and that's also one of the things that, that does happen 
just because we see small changes, which are still valid changes, um, happen because of social media. We think, oh, yay, the work is done, but it's not. If anything, um, to your point, the work is yet to start. I think we can we have a lot of examples, even as a country, um, you know, just because apartheid ended in the sense that laws were passed, it doesn't necessarily mean that people people's lives were changed um, or, mm-hmm. or that, you know, they had, they had to just, you know, remove a trauma from their brains. So with that being said, um, would you not then say, I mean, social media, I mean, even the fact that it's regarded as a medium um, in a similar sense to journalism, when it comes to sensationalism, we sort of get really excited for perhaps, I mean, even with examples around, you know, um, fees must fall, uh, gender-based violence, um, Black Lives Matter. Yes, ongoing issues, but it's only once there's a huge tragic event um, or something where it's sensationalized, um, Mm -hmm. where people actually will be interested and move on, I guess, to the next topic in the same way that journalists do. Um, Would you then say there is perhaps more sort of work to be done around not necessarily more responsible use of of the mediums including journalism and media um but just you know more responsible work around uh, the the actual intention of of somewhat sensationalizing a topic yeah i mean i think sensationalism is human nature (laughs) It's as old as we are, right? Wherever groups of people gather, sensationalism will happen. That's, you know, it's always the extremes that will attract our attention. Um, And especially now in the age of, uh, I find, one of the things I find is uh, people like to say, oh my God, things are so much more violent now, or, you know, so much worse for women today than it was before. And I don't think that's true. I just think the awareness has increased. That's all. We just hear about it more now, whereas before, you know, You'd have to like wait until the Sunday paper or tomorrow's newspaper to read about murders. And even then those murders would have to be the murders that the editors have deemed worth putting in the newspaper, right? And now those filters slowly falling and disappearing, um, you know, of course it would increase the sensationalism because they're, there, there's, so, there's so much more attention being paid to certain things and more voices being amplified um, over whatever the issue may be and that always of course does pose a danger and i do think there needs to be we need to have more responsible conversations um media itself needs to have more responsible conversations as people we need to have more responsible conversations um but i I don't see it happening anytime soon just simply because how are you going to control also then it goes back to this right like actually are you trying to control everybody and to muzzle certain people um or we'll just never we won't find common ground there's just too many of us too many like human beings for us to find a common ground where we agree that this is responsible and this isn't and i think also then it would come back to even just looking at definitions of words like that um what when we say more responsible uh discussions or words being used what exactly do we mean by that there's just there's still so much to unpack i I don't have i don't have the answer Mm. actually because um you know i i I was listening to a, a podcast between I can't remember who was interviewing Gia Tolentino, who's a, a writer for The New Yorker that 
I'm completely obsessed with her. Uh, I, I think I quote her every, every, every chance I get. I'm just like, Gia Tolentino wrote. Um, but there was an interview where she was talking about when she used to work. She's worked at Gorka, not Gorka. She worked at Jezebel and she worked at, uh, I can't remember where else. Now she's at the New Yorker. But she's saying that one of the pressures that writers find themselves under specifically is when you write um, a think piece or an opinion piece, a column, there's this pressure to wrap it up neatly in a bow with a happy ending because people want happy endings, right? They want you to say, um, these are the ills, A, B, C, D, D, A, B, C, D, wow, E, F, G. <laughs> um, and then the solution is, we don't always have the solutions, right? Actually, sometimes you're just like, this is where we're at. The internet can't solve all of the country's problems. It's, it's a very small, like a small part of this big machine. And I don't know where we go from here. We need to be more responsible, but I don't know how, I don't know what that looks like. And I don't know if it'll ever happen. And that in fact is the best way to actually round up our conversation today is that, you know, we expect <laughs> to have some sort of solid answers by the end of our conversations, but sometimes it's just around unpacking and showing that there is something to actually discuss without necessarily having all the answers. So thank you so much, Pearl, for joining us today. Um, Truly enjoyed your chat around social media activism and what it looks like in our country and what, you know, how, what those nuances are. And thanks to those that took time to join us today. I'm really looking forward to the podcast. For those of you who um, don't follow us on social media, we're on YouTube and we have recently launched an Apple podcast and we're also on Spotify. Thanks again, Pearl, uh, for joining us this evening. and. Have a great evening.